Coronavirus restrictions are beginning to ease, and as we wake from the hibernation of lockdown and step forth into a post-coronavirus society, we're seeing a different world meet our eyes. This is our reality now. RMIT Journalism welcomes you back for episode 8 of the Undercover Podcast. Our theme for this episode is Reality Now. I'm Eva Marchingo, and this episode will be arming you with stories to quell your queries about life after lockdown. We'll talk about how you're faring, missing friends or fearing a return to your outside life. We'll cover stories from a few of our closest international neighbours, and we'll give you an update on the environment as well as the manufacturing industry. But first, I want to tell you about an interview I conducted last week with internationally renowned journalist Eve Barlow. Eve Barlow is an idol of mine. She's funny, fierce and incisive. It's no wonder she's been published in the likes of The Guardian and The New Yorker, among many other esteemed publications. We talked from either side of the world, myself cold on a winter morning and Eve awaiting dinner in sunny Los Angeles. I asked Eve about the future of journalism in a post-coronavirus society, perhaps selfishly hoping for her to bring light to otherwise dim predictions. Had there not been a global recession in 2007, I would never have pursued my dream. So I actually pursued it because the world was on fire, you know? Um, And I think to your question, Sometimes when things look like they can't get any worse, that is the situation in which there is most opportunity. Even even if you don't think there's a clear path or even if you don't think one exists, we haven't been in lockdown for very long, but the world as we knew it has crumbled pretty quickly. And the reason why that's happened is because so many of our systems and not just in media, So many of our systems are so fundamentally flawed and have been so in dire need of repair for so long. Where the system is broken, there is opportunity for younger, sharper minds who aren't as tired out by the slog of it, of like having to have survived in the juggernaut for decades plus. who understand new media in a way that is more kind of ingrained and organic because it's just your language. For more of my interview with Eve Barlow, listen to the Undercover Podcast Extended Cut or visit our socials on Facebook, Twitter at under underscore cover or Instagram at undercover.podcast. Now it's time to dive into this episode's stories. The first from Carly Smith. For most people, 2020 started like any other year. Many spent New Year's with friends and family waiting for the countdown. You might have even got a little bit tipsy and when it hit zero, you thought of all the things that you wanted to achieve in this new year. That could be to run a marathon, travel more, nail a job interview or try new things. 
you eventually might even get a little bit disappointed because you don't follow through with these expectations for simple mundane reasons. But no one could have known that a pandemic would force us to reassess what is actually important to us. Hey, how are you? That's Lara, a 22-year-old from Victoria. Due to lockdown, Lara has been forced to take a step back from the usual chaos of her day-to-day life. It has left her with not a whole lot to do other than think of all the things she took for granted without ever really realising it. I keep thinking about this time before lockdown. My um, friend rang me and asked if I wanted to go out for breakfast with her. And like I just started watching this new TV show and I really couldn't be bothered. Um, But these days, I kind of wish that I had said yes to getting out of bed and going to get breakfast. The news is filled with constant increasing figures, with over 300,000 deaths and 4.8 million infected. It is in these confusing and uncertain times that we really rely on our friends and family to support us. But social distancing restrictions has changed our ability to be there for loved ones when they need a shoulder to cry on. I miss seeing people. I understand and totally 100% respect that distancing is so needed, but I never realised how much I actually enjoyed seeing people face to face. I think it's because even though some things have been put on hold, life, you know, still goes on and shit does still happen. Even being in lockdown, it might protect us from corona, but what I'm saying is it doesn't protect you from emotional things. Like, I love my friends, but before this, I don't think I actually fully appreciated them and what they brought to my life. And if there's one thing that I'm taking out of this whole few months is to not take people for granted. With the spread of COVID-19 across the world, people have been forced to cancel their plans of social gatherings. Parties, picnics, visiting grandma, it has all been put on hold to try and reduce the spread of coronavirus. But following the first signs of social distancing rules being eased in Australia, families and friends can finally reunite after months spent apart. What I have noticed is that when people are catching up after this whole time apart is that we're actually being more present with each other. Normally, my social media is just full of people's continuous stories of the night hanging out with their friends. But at the moment, it's just the initial, I missed you, so good to see you again. And that's it. You know, I guess being forced to socialise purely via tech all that time now reminded us to make the most of when we're actually together. We have no idea what's going to happen in a month from now and if we do go back to stricter social distancing I think we're going to treasure and begin to appreciate the time that we are together. Yeah. There is a long and unpredictable road ahead but maybe when we make it to the other side we'll be better for it. It is tough and somewhat scary and how dramatically the world has changed so quickly. But there's this hope that although our economy may be weakened, as a society, we will be stronger. May we never forget this time and the feelings, both good and bad, about being physically separated from one another. May we look our waiter in the eye, thank the Uber driver at 3am, 
hold the door open for strangers and more frequently and freely tell the people we love why we love them. Maybe the next time we are tired and a friend asks us out for breakfast, we won't hesitate in saying yes because we know how lucky we are to have the freedom to do so. A beautiful story there from Carly Smith on the reality of relationships coming out of isolation. Like Carly said, no one could have predicted what this year would hold for us all. Our next story comes from Sairi Smith about dealing with reality when the floor of your plans is unpredictably ripped from beneath you. Living in a pandemic is, of course, not what any of us expected to experience in the beginning of a new decade. A new year for most people represents a reset, a regroup and a revision of future plans. What should I do? What do I want to do? How can I have a great year? So when our plans, our dreams and our aspirations come crashing down, it can be quite jarring. Um, so I was studying abroad. I was meant to. I did leave in January, and I was meant to stay. Um, I meant to travel Europe until the end of July. Um, my flight home was yeah, almost in August, and I was living in Scotland until the beginning of June. Like I had plans to do that. This is Dominique Karatsoglu. At the beginning of the year, after much preparation and determination, Dominique boarded a plane to Scotland to do a semester abroad. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit, she had to pack up what she had worked so hard for and come home early. I got like an urgent notice saying my abroad had been cancelled and I had to go home. It was a strong recommendation and I called my advisor and said, do I have to come home? Because in the case that I don't have to, I'm not going to. Um, and he said I can say it was my call, but he was urging me to come home. And then I got another email maybe three days later saying your abroad has been completely cancelled and you signed a waiver saying that in like unprecedented circumstances Deacon could cancel my abroad and I would be forced to come home. Travel outside of the country has been limited since restrictions were introduced in March. And according to the Australian government, international travel will remain on hold for the foreseeable future. At the moment, it's considered the final step in the ease of restrictions and of life returning back to normal. But for now, this is the new normal. And for Dominique, like many others, adjusting to reality now has been a hard task. So mentally, how has this been for you? It's actually been really difficult. Like, I think more difficult than I anticipated it would be. I mean, I feel like I, I feel like I walk around Melbourne and I don't fit in here. Like, I feel like this just isn't where I'm meant to be. And, like, coming back home, I just felt, like, out of place. And I just thought, like, this is the life. I worked so hard to, like, just take a break from for a couple months. And I've ended up straight back exactly in the same position I was, like, three months prior to leaving. And it just kind of felt... I thought about seeing, like, um, getting in touch with my psychologist again just because that's how, like... It was, there was such a mental impact. According to a report by the ABC, the social and economic repercussions of the coronavirus have already taken an astronomical toll on the overall mental health and well-being of Australians. 
And according to Lifeline, there were 25% more calls in March than last year. This equates to over 90,000 calls. And like we take for granted the ability to breathe from our noses until we discover we have a cold, it's also easy to take for granted our access to the outside world. We were so naive that we were like, how good is this coronavirus? We have like, because there was no tourists around, you had places to yourself. It was like, it seemed like everything was going to be okay, but people were a bit nervous about it. We didn't watch the news enough. We were like living in a bubble. We didn't know how bad it was. Like, I didn't think it was that bad until I literally got on the plane home. Until Dominique had been directly affected by the virus, it was easy to underestimate. In fact, for most of us, it didn't quite hit home until restrictions were in place. Suddenly, seeing our loved ones, doing what we loved, and feeling at home became much harder. For Dominique, the ability to travel was an outlet, something to work for, a motivation, and a way to connect. And what do we do when something this monumental challenges what drives us? I didn't come home empty-handed in a way that, like, I made some lifelong friends and, like, I still talk to my girlfriends from overseas and, I don't know, just the whole experience was pretty, like, it was life-changing. Like, it sounds so cliche and, you know, everybody hates kids who study abroad when they don't shut up about it, but it was. Like, it was really, it was awesome to immerse myself in another culture and be completely alone there and have to, like, you know, figure it out all by myself. Even though I got sent home early, I'm still really grateful for the time that I did get to spend there. When we think of international travel, we think of white sandy beaches, tour buses and flip-flops, but the ability to travel runs far deeper than tourism magazines. Travelling means to visit a loved one, to connect with other cultures, immerse yourself in something new and possibly find a home. Though the future of international travel is uncertain, our appreciation for what we share is not. That report from Syrie Smith. A newfound sense of gratitude is something we have been seeing pop up throughout this pandemic, but not everyone has felt grateful for their government's handling of the crisis. Sayi Ravi Sankar has been researching the Indonesian government's handling of coronavirus cases and whether or not they're being transparent in the number of cases. Back in February, when the world was starting to feel the effects of COVID-19, Indonesia stood strangely immune, with over 267 million people often living in densely populated areas, it would seem strange that a communicably transferable virus still had not reached the archipelago, despite still accepting travellers from all over the world. During the same month, Harvard University's professor Dr. Mark Lipsitch and his team published a report suggesting that it was highly unlikely that Indonesia did not have a single case. The study, which analysed the air traffic out of Wuhan, indicated the possibility that the country may have missed positive cases due to poor screening. The Indonesian government condemned the report, calling it insulting. I spoke to Andreas Harsono, fellow journalist and Indonesia researcher at the Human Rights Watch, about the actual reality on the ground now. Indonesia, until now, over the last three months, hasn't done enough COVID-19 testing to get to know the real situations on the ground. Until late March, the government still had only one laboratory for 280 million people. 
and now they have 37. But again, 37, Indonesia has 34 provinces and more than 500 regencies, cities. Meaning that many, many big regencies, cities, they have to send the samples to the provincial capital to get the result. And until now, we do not know how many days in average for one to know the result. According to the Jakarta Post, Lapur COVID-19, which consists of several civil groups, reported that fatalities among suspected COVID-19 cases in 18 provinces of Indonesia was 3,833 as of May 15th. When combined with the number of deaths reported by the government, Indonesia could potentially have more than 5,300 deaths as of 28th May. With such news circulating in the local media, there seems to be widespread distrust with the numbers announced by the government. There also seems to be some difficulty in obtaining a national number. The government announced it every day, but people, well, people know that that is too small from the reality. People can compare with the number of burials, the increase of monthly death in Jakarta, for instance. People can compare with the number of coffins that are being bought. Uh, last but not the least, we are also seeing increasing dispute between local government and the national government, West Java, Central Java, East Java, Papua. Local government wanted to have a lockdown and the national government refused. There are a lot of dispute. What the doctor association, nurse association, first of all, they announce every time a doctor has died or a nurse has died or ambulance driver has died. As of last week, there are 55 already died. 34 doctors, if I'm not mistaken, and 17 nurses have died. And still I saw two nurses died uh, yesterday, this week. Uh, so they keep on publishing their death colleagues. But in terms of patient, the doctors are also having difficulties, not only because they are, you know, based in the provinces, provincial capital at the least, and also because there are many deaths that are not reported. President Joko Widodo, Indonesia's Obama, as he was referred to during his first election in 2014, was a wildly popular candidate. His candidacy campaign for his first term created a never-before-seen interest among Indonesians, with Time magazine saying in 2014, Indonesian voters headed to the polling booths on Wednesday with an enthusiasm that was unthinkable some months ago. It was called the Jokowi effect. Five years on, and in his second term, the hype seems to have worn off, especially now. I'm afraid to say that the government popularity is declining now. Even among those who strongly supported the government, President Joko Widodo in this case, many of them are becoming critical against his flip-flopping policy. Uh, and of course, this is a pandemic. People, people realize, realize that people are dying. Many people say on their Facebook, they see people are dying. 
I personally have six people whom I know, including my college professor, my classmate who died because of this pandemic. And because of this, people, people will not tolerate the government anymore because this is getting personal. The COVID-19 pandemic is quickly becoming a worldwide economic crisis. And with a long history of economic crisis turning into a social crisis, political crisis, and ending in violence, Harsono says situations such as these are extremely critical for a country like Indonesia. With the country already seeing social tensions in some provinces, the government and the public would need to work together, now more than ever. Insightful reporting there from Sayi Ravi Sankar. While there may be travel restrictions in place, news and information flowing from across the world is in no danger of stopping. From Indonesia to Singapore, David Forster talks to someone who has the unique insight of experiencing two different pandemics, each from different countries. John McGrath is a retired managing director of Special Metals Private Limited. He started work in Singapore over 30 years ago where he experienced the SARS epidemic between 2002 and 2004. He's now living on a farm in Victoria where he's facing lockdown for a second time in his life due to coronavirus. He normally lives in Singapore in Australian winters. Having lived through two deadly virus outbreaks, John is able to compare his experiences in lockdown. In Singapore... The original lockdown was not as severe as now. Pubs were open, restaurants were open, uh, but the current status in Singapore is that it's a full lockdown, everything's closed. Hawker stalls, which is a very common place for the population to eat at, you can get food there as takeaway. So it's a fairly severe lockdown. Singapore went into early COVID-19 lockdown in January and Australia followed in March. The World Health Chief Tedros Adhagagbrasis in February said, Singapore is leaving no stone unturned testing every case of influenza-like illness and pneumonia. Singapore's STARS experience meant they were able to better prepare for the current pandemic. After a relaxation of social distancing, a second wave of the virus hit when foreign workers contracted the virus. Living in cramped dormitories, transported like sardines, the foreign workers are employed in construction, cleaning, health and aged care and do jobs many Singaporeans believe are beneath them. On the 14th of April, 1,625 cases were connected to the foreign workers. They're fixing it up. They're employing literally thousands of people to go to the dormitories as employed people, uh, apply sanitizer to everything that's stationary and anything that moves. So it will be a problem until they get it under control, but they will get it under control. I asked John, how would he contrast the differences in approach between Australia and Singapore? I think at the beginning, Singapore was authoritarian and efficient. Uh, but Singapore had the advantage of going through SARS. They built a 500-bed hospital just for respiratory diseases. 
Whereas I think in Australia, Australia was slow to react because there wasn't that prior SARS experience. Five parents and one student were infected by a person returning from Aspen, Colorado after they attended a Geelong Grammar Timber Top Parents Cocktail Party on March the 20th. A hate campaign in social media alleging a Portsea couple went to Aspen and did not comply with quarantine requirements is strenuously denied by the couple. A large sign at Sorrento said, go back to Aspen. I asked John, has he got any views about reactions in social media to keep people away from Mornington Peninsula? I think what comes out of all of this is that those people that act responsibly uh, will continue to do it. If people will not exercise social responsibility by themselves, there has to be enforcement. But if they do exercise it, it doesn't matter that they come from Aspen and come back, provided that they handle themselves correctly. John is used to the Trace Together proximity app in Singer, from which the Australian app called COVID Safe has been derived. He says the app provides traceability of between 1.5 metres and 30 metres. In Singapore, there is a thing called an IC, or your identity card. And your identity card is a single source of all that you do. So your bank accounts, your tax, your driver's license. Now, in terms of authoritarian, the proximity app that they're talking about in Australia now has been available in Singapore. It's a voluntary thing, not formalised. Ultimately, it should not be a political contrast between countries and certainly still exists as to what the world will look like when the pandemic is at an end. A vaccine has yet to be found. David Forster with that interview. our next story, we often hear about our manufacturing industry closing down. However, Australia's manufacturing industry currently contributes $100 billion to Australia's GDP. Ostang is a Victorian manufacturing firm who have innovated their business model over years to sustain viability in the manufacturing industry. Laura Green spoke to Managing Director Roscoe George about making goods for Australia in the time of coronavirus. So Ostend are a, a boutique engineering and manufacturing firm and we uh, specialise in taking our customers' concepts or ideas or lab-scale um, work and turning it into commercial production equipment. The healthcare system in Australia was prepping for a huge influx of coronavirus patients to hospitals, similar to cases in Italy and America, back when the country went into lockdown in March. Fears were rising over a potential shortage of ventilators hospitals had seen in Italy, where doctors and nurses were forced to choose who to give ventilators to and who would miss out. It prompted manufacturing firms like Ostend to be readying for the worst, so Australian hospitals wouldn't have to make the same harrowing decisions. So one of our um, one of our um, uni friends rang us, uh, and she's a specialist anaesthetist in ICU at the Alfred, um, and there's a and then at that and that time they were concerned about um, you know having really high rates and not having enough um, ventilators, um, and they've they've uh, found that you that you can 
Um, if you've got patients that are similar, um, that are medically similar or their lungs are similar, they found that they could actually ventilate um, more than one patient from one ventilator and that would make their ventilators go further. Um, so what they were after was actually a, a manifold. A manifold. A manifold is a wide and or bigger pipe or channel into which smaller pipes or channels lead. Roscoe was able to fiddle with the design of the pipe to make one ventilator work for up to four uh, patients. Up to four patients to one ventilator by running a pipe into a manifold and, and that manifold had one inlet and four outlets. You know, so we were able to, as other manufacturers were able to in different areas, we were able to get the information. Like we had the phone call on Tuesday, we got the information on Wednesday, we did a 3D file on Thursday and it was printed and they picked it up on Saturday morning. That's um, amazing. And so yeah. how long have they been using them? So, look, well, the best news about the story, Laura, is um, um, because they didn't get the peak that they, one of the, some of the modelling showed, they actually, they actually had plenty of, they actually had plenty of ventilators and, um, and they didn't have to use it, which is like, yes. Um, but, but the, but the point is that it was, um, you know, we done, we done all the, yeah, you know, they'd done the work, you know, we'd done the homework, we proved that we could build them, so they were basically sitting there at the, at the, at the starting line. And you know, if they did need them, they'd just have to hit the button and, uh, and we were producing. What has been a strange new boom for manufacturing has been the demand for materials for cemeteries, cemeteries crematoria, and funerals. Yeah, so we supply mm. engineering equipment into that into that sector. There was a whole grocery list of you know furnaces, charge beers, catafalques, coffin trolleys, transfer vans, um, you know, grave shoring. We've got a precast grave system, grave safety fences, coffin lowering devices. Uh, more slim internment devices, so we've got a full spectrum of, of engineering uh, kit, and it's not a, a normally not a big part of our business. It's it's a nice part of it, but um, but it just when um, when the COVID sort of came along, you know, all of our customers thought potentially thought, oh, this could really take off, and they could get really busy, as has happened in other countries. Has any part of business slowed down since coronavirus showed up in Australia? The the bit that has slowed down is anything. Um, that to do with interstate travel, like we we we've got a like a service circuit where you know we've got equipment in all states and territories in Australia. I asked when business is expected to pick back up again for the manufacturing sector. He told me September was their best guess, but that international work within the Trans Tasman travel bubble might offer business opportunities with New Zealand. I guess uh, what what's the situation taught you about your business operations? I know you've had to adapt before. You can do a whole lot of. Um, work that I thought you'd have to do face-to-face. -face. Like if you're doing engineering work, it's, you've always got a whiteboard or a, or a pen and paper, so you're drawing things and um, so, you, you know, it's a way of conveying ideas. You know, so we found that um, uh, doing business um, remotely actually isn't as hard as we thought it would be. Do you think the pandemic is forcing Australia to build up some of its industries like manufacturing? Oh, look, uh, I, absolutely. Um, the challenge, I think, for the manufacturing industry is um, uh, how can they um, maintain the, the effectively the public momentum that's there. Um, there's, you know, because you know, you know, we didn't have a, you know a whole lot of things, um, you know, and, and manufacturers have have come up to the market and they, you know, we're making ventilators, we're making face masks, we're making all sorts of stuff in Australia that we weren't making in February. Yeah, and because there's a recognition that governments need to keep pumping money into the economy to um, to aid the recovery. Australia is the best position country in the world, bar none, to 
because we've got such wonderful renewable resources, you know, huge solar resources in the, you know, the Pilbara and the Gascoigne and all the rest of it, um, and huge wind, so, uh, wind resources, you know, down south, we could be more sustainable internally and have a better export market because we're adding more value to our, to our products um, and making them environmentally friendly. And I think there's just an absolutely wonderful opportunity to be had. It feels like one part luck and one part hard work and compassion from Australian citizens that meant the peak professionals were expecting never came. But it's good to know that people are out there ensuring Australia is ready if or when we need it. As Laura reported in that story, being ready is something a lot of people have been thinking about during this pandemic. Since the Australian government began the first stages of easing self-isolation restrictions in mid-May, some people have been eager to prove just how ready they are to jump out of lockdown and see family and friends again. But for others, after getting used to lockdown, there will be a struggle to adjust to their new reality. Meg de Jong looks into the psychological disorder of reverse culture shock, which will affect many amid the pandemic. Ever since COVID-19 restrictions began to ease in Australia, there has been an overwhelming feeling of relief for a lot of people. Now, we can visit best friends in their home, reunite with extended family members, or spend a sunny afternoon in the park with those closest to us. Our desire for connection that has been craved across the country is being allowed in small doses as the government attempts to bring the dream of a functioning post-coronavirus society into a reality. This is great news, right? Of course, the obvious answer is yes, but for some, these changes present a new challenge. Claire Forbes lives in Torquay, a coastal town about an hour and a half drive from the city of Melbourne. She has just started returning to face-to-face work as a support coordinator which means she has to travel to Werribee and surrounding suburbs to meet with and assist clients. And so far, she has found this challenging. I feel a little bit unsure and uncertain. And to be honest with you, there's been a little bit of anxiety through the restrictions, but easing them is giving me a little bit of anxiety too. While a lot of people will be thrilled to begin returning to the day-to-day, A large number of people like Claire will struggle to reintegrate into pre-COVID-19 normality as we very slowly move forwards in easing self-isolation rules. This innate response is called reverse culture shock, and it occurs when people struggle to readjust now that the previously familiar has suddenly become unfamiliar. I spoke to Katrina Tsoulis, an educational and developmental psychologist, about what this psychological disorder is. So it's when people struggle to become accustomed to what was once familiar to them. And this might be because they are a different person, the experience has changed them, and now they need to figure out how it all fits into their life and their original environment. So, despite the long-awaited news of restrictions lifting, I had to ask why is reverse culture shock something people are feeling in the current circumstances? It's great news that restrictions are being lifted, but... Some people will definitely struggle with easing back to their normal lives, going out and seeing people again. And this might be because we've all been living our lives in a completely different way for such a long time. And now we're able to go out and socialise again. 
it's likely that this experience has changed a lot of people and it's not uncommon for people to start to question themselves and their experience and it can put a lot of things into perspective um, and it can be quite overwhelming to go back to a busy life after being quiet for so long. I asked Claire if she knew what reverse culture shock was. She didn't. So I explained what it meant and she was relieved to hear that maybe she wasn't alone in her reservations about COVID-19 restrictions easing. Um, now the restrictions have eased, I feel a bit odd for not feeling happy like my friends. I've adjusted to this new normal, which was unexpected. You know, I know we're meant to be social, but it's the last thing I feel like doing. Claire also confided in me that she is going to struggle moving forwards and wondered how long it would take for her to readjust and let go of new behaviours that she has adopted during the pandemic. I know we're meant to be keeping our distance, and I am, but when people run past me so close, it makes me feel really anxious. And I just wonder, how do I go back to normal? How do I go back to the normal? Data collected by the University of Tasmania in research led by Dr Kimberly Norris, a clinical psychologist specialising in Antarctic confinement and reintegration, has found that reverse culture shock is usually prevalent among individuals who have lived overseas. In particular, those who have returned from long-term Antarctic expeditions. When returning from these trips, people can have difficulty connecting to friends and relatives or making simple choices such as picking what to eat off a menu. While staying at home in Australia is quite different from isolated living through the polar winter, there are similarities between the two experiences. Now that we're allowed to see friends and family or go to our favourite cafes in small numbers, we are suddenly overwhelmed by choice. Returned Antarctic expeditioners are advised to refrain from going back to work in their first month of living at home to help with reintegration. While Australians won't have this luxury, Mr Sula says we should still make changes slowly where possible. Some, some people might feel really overwhelmed and some people might have to slow down and slowly reconnect with family and friends and not do it all at once. It's also super important in times like this to lean on each other, even if it's from a distance. So I think it's really important to let someone know how you're feeling and get their support and find some, com find some comfort in someone. So instead of feeling like you have to quickly make up for lost time, take comfort in the fact that we are all in this together and slowly we can find our footing. Our world has changed and we as individuals have changed and now is a time to accept that and move forwards into our new reality. Meg de Jong with that story. Many changes have occurred around the world as our lives were upheaved by the COVID-19 crisis. Enforced lockdowns have impacted our society greatly, but perhaps the biggest impact has been on our environment. Gabriella Payne has more. Our busy, bustling lives were forced to a standstill earlier this year as the coronavirus pandemic spread throughout the globe. 
as cities went into lockdown and isolation laws forced us to stay at home, we seemingly gave our planet a moment to breathe. International flights all but ground to a halt. Commuters no longer needed to commute, reducing the number of cars and trains in cities everywhere. And already this has made an impact. A recent study published in the journal Nature Climate Change showed that carbon dioxide emissions fell dramatically around the world since the imposed lockdowns went into place. The study found that daily emissions of CO2 dropped 17% by early April in comparison to the same time last year, making this the sharpest drop in carbon emissions the world has experienced since records began. With less traffic on the roads and people on the streets, this wasn't the only major environmental change the world began to see. All sorts of animals have been venturing out to urban landscapes, reappearing in cities across the globe. Sarah Beckersey, a conservation scientist and professor of sustainability and urban planning from RMIT University in Melbourne, believes that there may be three explanations for this. One is that there were reported sightings of dolphins in the canals of Venice, for example, which turned out to be just fake news. Um, two is that people are just seeing things that they haven't noticed before because we've all slowed down and we're spending more time perhaps in the one place or just having more of an opportunity to observe our surrounds. Um, but then the third thing is that there are actually quite a few species that have existed on the periphery of cities. So, for example, mountain lions in Santiago in Chile and the penguins in, in Cape Town that are now just seeing a lot of the threats that would normally keep them away from cities are uh, greatly reduced because there are less cars, less uh, disturbance, less noise, less light pollution. You may have seen footage of some of these instances circulating through the news and social media. As Professor Beckersey said, mountain lions and penguins have made appearances in some of the world's lockdown cities and towns, but they're not the only ones. In Thailand, monkeys have reclaimed city streets, while in Japan, the famous Nara deer, who are used to being fed by tourists, are now wandering the city in search of food. And it's happening here in Australia too. In Adelaide, kangaroos were filmed hopping down the empty main streets, looking oddly out of place in the concrete landscape. Cities are places that can be quite hostile to a lot of uh, wildlife. Um, so, for example, you know, light pollution, even air pollution can affect, say, the breeding success of birds quite dramatically. You know, we often conflict with, with wildlife. With people forced to stay indoors, working remotely from the comfort of home, it seems nature has been given a slight reprieve from our industrial world. Things can actually evolve relatively rapidly in cities if you give wildlife and other the chance. But we might actually even see sort of more weeds and plants returning to streets, depending on you know, how long it goes on for. 
During lockdown, parks and trails here in Melbourne have become busier than ever, with more and more people turning to exercise as a way to escape the isolation. But what will happen when these regulations inevitably come to an end? Restrictions are already beginning to ease in countries around the world. So will we resume our lives where they left off, returning to our old way of living? Or will we make a change in the wake of this pandemic? It's really interesting to think about what the enduring benefits or impacts of uh, the lockdown will be on wildlife. I have a optimistic view that um, people have actually experienced nature in a slightly different way in this lockdown, um, either by just noticing more what's happening around you. I also think there's a deeper appreciation of the need for nature, and it's a well-known fact that exposure to nature can really benefit you mentally in terms of your, um, you know, your health and your well-being. And so hopefully having nature in our city is something that we can achieve. It's desirable and it's, it could well be a, an enduring part of, of our future. Professor Beckersey, along with many others, believes that the idea of remote working and learning would be beneficial for not only ourselves, but also the world moving forward. Reductions in traffic could lead to less air pollution, which would benefit many species in the long run. Although it's been a devastating crisis, the coronavirus pandemic may have taught us a few lessons along the way. Perhaps this has been the wake-up call we needed. I do hope that we can take a step back and think, you know, if we're going to have a recovery from COVID, can we have a green recovery? That would be a great outcome. As reported by Gabrielle Payne there, high hopes for taking a step back and learning from our time in lockdown are a thought shared by many. What can we take from this time to line our pockets ready for the next stage? What resonated the most with you? Will you remember to say yes more often to an invite out from your friends? Are you reassured that even when life throws you a curveball, you can handle it? Maybe you feel grateful for how our country and subsequent manufacturing industries have handled this crisis and the position we'll all be in because of that. Will you be kinder to yourself for feeling confronted by the thought of facing a new reality? Do you feel hopeful for our environment because of what we've learned during this period? Remember to follow our podcast on Twitter at cover underscore podcast, Instagram at undercover.podcast, and you can find us on Facebook as well. Please also get in touch with us by leaving a voice message on our phone number 03 9018 5005. You have been listening to episode 8 of the Undercover Podcast, where we uncover the realities of life after coronavirus. Our team at Undercover work hard to bring your stories and stories that matter to you to the front. We care deeply about our society and want to bring you coverage that will make you feel less alone and more included. We hope that in telling these stories, we've reminded you of the importance of storytelling. There are still many things happening in our world separate to this pandemic, in our own backyard and far away. So please, stay informed, stay curious, and stay safe. I'm Eve Marchingo, goodbye. 
Episode 8 of RMIT's Undercover Podcast was brought to you by reporters Carly Smith, Sairi Smith, Sayi Ravisankar, David Forster, Laura Green, Meg de Jong and Gabriella Payne. Presented by Eva Marchingo and produced by Alexandra Middleton and Leila Arakova.